Hello from Spearfish, South Dakota. It's the Black Hills Information Security Podcast. This is the podcast version of our webcast. So some of the slides we reference might be missing, but you can find the whole episode on our YouTube channel. This is Attack Tactics Part 2 with John Strand and special guest Chris Brenton and me, Sierra. So last week we went over an attack and I'm still going to quickly go over the attack concepts, but today we're going to focus a lot more on the defensive components of how you could have stopped Black Hills information security or even just a general attacker at each step of the way. This is going to continue to be a series of that Black Hills information security and offensive countermeasures where we're going to walk through an attack that we did getting into an organization through a web server or Outlook Web Access or Google for Google Apps Domain. We'll talk about that attack, and then we're gonna have another webcast that's going to go through and talk about the defensive components. So this is an organization that was using Office 365 for their email. They had a whole bunch of internal systems. They had a firewall and a DMZ, and of course, a domain controller. Quite standard, really. And we started with doing Recon, and the tool that we wrote at Black Hills Information Security is called Recon NG and it has over 100 recon modules built into it that do all kinds of things for enumerating users, services, netbox, vulnerabilities, and possibly passwords. Now, one of the things that was discovered was Office 365. We found Office 365 portals, yes, and we love finding any type of cloud-based email system that we can attack. If I had to say that there's one specialty that BHIS has right now, it's attacking cloud services. Uh, we don't see a lot of people focusing on that in pen tests. They seem to be focusing more on phishing and delivering malware via attachments, via links on websites that people can download the malware. We've been focusing a tremendous amount on attacking cloud-based services with a lot of really cool tools. Uh, also, as part of the recon, uh, we were able to dump a large number of credentials. If you've been following Troy Hunt and PwnList over the past couple of weeks, there's been a large number of data breaches where credentials have been exposed publicly from third-party websites. These credentials can follow you back home, much like a, a, a clingy zombie, because people will use the exact same password at work as they use on a variety of different third-party websites that they register for. And these websites may not have really strong hashing algorithms associated with them. And by the way, if it seems like I'm going really, really fast over the attack stuff, that's because we did all of the attack stuff in the previous webcast, which I think if you go to blackhillsinfosec.com, click on webcast, it's currently the top hit. It's Attack Tactics 1. And you can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. There you go. It's on YouTube as well. So defense, this is what we wanted to get to. So the first thing that you should do when you're trying to defend against recon against your organization is you should do that recon yourself. There's a large number of vendors out there that are trying to come up with products and services where they will do recon for you and let you know. Uh, Chris, what was that? Uh, there was a company that we were talking about a while ago that had uh, a service where they could kind of do a credit score or kind of an overall security trustworthiness score for third parties for you. They do all kinds of recon looking at their um, uh, looking at their mail setup, their DNS setup, possible vulnerabilities, then come back with a score. I can't remember what the name of that company was. Yeah, there's actually a couple of them doing that today. So basically they'll go through and look at things like, do you have an SPF record? Mm -hmm. um, have you actually you know, banner scrubbed your web server? So they go through and they look at uh, some of the public facing, not really trying to break in things they can check and try to enumerate off of that. And yes, most some of them are a score of zero to 100. Some of them are, you know, color codes. There's actually a few of them out there doing that these days. And you can actually run those services against yourself. Uh, you can either purchase the service or you can use a free tool like ReconNG, which does this for free. Uh, but it will require you to go through the results and to have some kind of understanding as far as what is coming back. Like, what are the services coming back from Shodan? Uh, what are the possible creds that are breached on places like Have I Been Pwned and so on? And the point about this is that many of the attacks that we leverage to gain access to networks aren't really against a service with the remote exploits. Like, you know, we we're talking about 2003, 03026 RPC DCOM. Um, that is an attack against a service. Eternal Blue is an attack against a service and so on. But we don't really find those all that often. I mean, you could try to develop a zero day, but taking that amount of time is just a tremendous amount of work. And 
it's really not needed, to be honest. So finding those remote exploits is rare because a lot of people got very good about patching their services externally. The other reason why it's rare is generally if an attacker gains access to a server on the edge of the network, they're gonna actually clean up after themselves to stop other people from getting access to those servers. So really attackers almost clean up their own problems that they discover, and that's not in a good way. They do that so they can maintain <laughs> access. So we don't find those remote access vulnerabilities all that often. There are a lot of other other tools that you can use. You can use Multego, simple Google searches. Shodan is fantastic. And we talked about Shodan and I demonstrated some Shodan in the last webcast. And this is tough. Ed, I, I wanted to get your opinion on this, Chris. We see this all the time about user awareness training. And it's I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some aspect of user awareness training. Um, one of the things you might want to try training people is using different passwords on different sites. Do you honestly think it's possible to train people effectively uh, in in corporate IT security infrastructures, passwords it's tough. Uh, folks tend to be lazy, and it's tough to find that kind of motivating thing. Um, I've had better luck trying to retrain people on not clicking phishing, and basically, mm. that kind of comes down to. Uh, trigger the dopamine with a reward system as opposed to actually viewing the email. Best one I've seen is uh, it was an organization had a uh, defender of the realm thing you could win. So if you were the first person to spot phishing, this this crew would come over dressed up like Klingons and present a Metcalf to you as the huh. guardian of the realm. And yeah, and, and like the engineers loved it. Everybody <laughs> loved it. So it was free. It cost them a couple of props. But people yeah. were like fighting with each other to try and catch the fishing one second before somebody else. Uh, that was like, you know, an awesome program that I saw. Uh, I haven't seen anything similar on the password side, though. Yeah. And the password side is what I've seen some organizations do is they will uh, subscribe to a service like InfoArmor, which I think they've changed their name for like the third or fourth time. Uh, but they will uh, constantly be watching these data breaches, seeing if any emails show up for any of their internal employees and then basically immediately have them change their passwords. But it's tough, right? Um, it, it's just really hard. Now, LastPass is something that we try to use a lot because it basically allows a user to generate a, a unique, difficult to guess password for every single website that they go to. The, the big problem I have with LastPass though, and I've lost this war, by the way, at BHIS, everyone's using it, I'm using it, is it makes me a little uncomfortable because LastPass is like putting all of your eggs in this LastPass basket. And that makes me a little, and I know a lot of people in security love it. I know we all I mean, constantly. There's always cons. Me. There's always cons to everything, right? Yeah. But we're just like weighing one con versus many cons. And, yeah. And I think that that's a, uh, I think that that's a good point, right? Because if it's using LastPass versus everybody using the exact same password for every single website, we and break into just, far more organizations with that technique than breaking into It's LastPass. just, you just have too many, You, just, I mean, you have too many accounts online to not use re reuse passwords. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, the other the other nice thing about LastPass is it gives you a fairly clean solution for sharing passwords between people. Not that you should be doing that, obviously, but you always run into like hardware where you get a single login to it and that's it. Everybody in IT needs that password. It gives you a way to share it besides like email, you know, yep. or Slack. Which with uh, uh, MailSniper has the ability to search through emails, and that's written by Bo, get access to systems, and we literally do a search across all the emails for passwords. literally all and there. They're all right there. It's like, here's all the passwords for all of our SCADA systems, uh, and they're all like variations of password 1234. Um, and other recon findings, creds, Office 365, support portals, proxies, Citrix servers, database servers exposed directly to the internet, multiple VPNs, Service Desk, SharePoint, and JBoss. And kind of uh, kind of sticking with that theme, the first attack was trying to exploit JBoss, you know, using a Metasploit module, checking for vulnerabilities in JBoss, nothing was found. Next attempt, default creds against different services, nothing was found for like admin, admin, um, Apache, Tomcat, uh, Scott, A, and Tiger, or whatever. None of the default credentials worked. Now, the defense for that is, you know, it'd be easy to say have an IDS, but honestly, 
you should shut down or restrict access to what's available on the edge of your network, specifically to different management pages. If you have management pages for JBoss, if you have management pages open for VPNs or any of your networking gear on the edge of your environment, that's just a, a, like a dinner bell for attackers everywhere. So restrict that access if you need it, restrict it so you can only access it internally. And if you don't need it, then shut it off, right? Identification is key, and one of the concerns, and this will be one of those consistent themes that we see in these webcasts, is there's so many free tools out there that organizations can be using right now to reduce their attackable surface, there's just no good reason not to. Like, if you get hit because there's a Mongo database exposed to the open internet, you should have known that. You should be running tools like Nmap or a vulnerability scanner on the edge of your network on a very regular basis. Um, so, and also on uh, scanning externally, I just had a call this week with a customer in IONS where they were very frightened of running vulnerability scans on the edge of their network. And there was a bunch of people in the organization that said, well, we don't do vulnerability assessment scans because it is going to crash something on the outside of the network. And I kind of agree with that, and I heavily disagree with it. I, I agree with it in the fact that you will end up crashing something eventually with a vulnerability assessment scanning engine. It is going to happen. It is absolutely going to happen at some point. However, on the edge of your network, the attackers are constantly scanning anyway. And if you're going to find the vulnerability, it is incredibly important that you find the vulnerability before the bad people do. And you're looking at my slides like I have a typo somewhere. Uh, uh, Michael said six and seventh items should be far too many and far too often. Sorry, used to be an editor. Well, I knew we would miss something, so, oh well. No, I disagree. That's the way I talk. That's the way I wrote it. He does sometimes talk that way. I do. I do say far too Eddie, far too many alerts. Far too often we do this. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Onward. Now, onward. now I'm completely shot. Now I'm going to be looking at everything. <laughs> Did I use is correctly here? Uh, hey, so, so uh, if I could just kind of please build on scan, yeah, build on the scanning you were talking about. One of the things I see missed a lot is folks have gotten a little better at checking their perimeter. But, oh, my God, what do I do about Amazon um, oh. you know, or DigitalOcean or whatever? Now, if you, you know, Amazon at least gives you some tools you can use in spec, you can use their API. Um, don't underestimate how much security info you can pull out of an API of a cloud vendor. Uh, to be able to go through and pull things down and do, you know, quick audits is just awesome. Uh, so, yeah, inspect is, or inspect inspector. Inspector is a pretty good tool on the Amazon side, but it's specific to Amazon only. Most of us are in multiple clouds. Uh, get used to addressing the API and pulling out the information you need and parsing it locally. And that idea of scanning in the cloud is also problematic because we're discovering with a lot of our customers that are using cloud services, and we're not just talking about spinning up VMs in the cloud, like full operating system stacks with apps on top of them, but the actual services themselves, you're starting to see a lot of these cloud vendors get very, very, very nervous about anybody scanning or testing against their services. So like if you're using Amazon Lambda and you want to test Lambda to make sure you didn't make a mistake, good luck. Uh, Amazon does not like people testing that. Um, and also Kinesis would be a good example as well. So it's getting, I think personally, Chris, it's getting harder and harder because a lot of these large vendors are telling us, just trust us, it's going to be okay. Yeah, you really have to pull it out of their API. And as you're saying, John, if you go in and you start scanning, they're just gonna shut you down. Yeah. Um, but you, if you know what to look for, you can, you know, pull the security groups or, you know, whatever the, whatever the wording the vendor uses, you can pull a lot of that stuff out directly on the API, start uh, parsing through it locally. Um, yep. That's the quickest way to find that stuff. And some of the things that we have been doing, if we actually do have to scan, uh, try to gain access, is we actually start up a service in one of the cloud vendors and then scan it with another, uh, scan another service. So like we'll use Amazon Lambda to do scanning against Google. Uh, because that's easier and they tend not to block each other uh, very often. And the tool that does that is called Cred King from You Stay Ready on Twitter or Mike Felch. Um, also, Eyewitness is great. Uh, what Eyewitness does is it's specific to like services like uh, v, uh, VNC, remote desktop protocol and web servers. But what it does, is it goes to port 80 and port 443, port 8080, any type of web services. And it'll take a screenshot of that web service. 
And this becomes really key, especially if you're a large scale organization that has hundreds and hundreds of web pages. A vulnerability assessment scanner or a port scan may just discover that there is a web server running, but it won't actually tell you what that web server's purpose in life actually is. So with eyewitness, you have the ability of actually doing that scanning and then finding out what those pages look like so you can go through those results fairly quickly. Um, IDS should have helped. Now, Chris, you spent years teaching the perimeter class at, at SANS. Do you really, so some of our customers lately have said they don't even bother trying to watch attacks coming from the outside in because there's so much noise and they're getting attacked constantly that they just really just kind of you know shut off all the alerts. And I don't honestly know how I feel about that. One of the, uh, so I tend to agree. It's that too much information is almost worse than not enough mm -hmm. because it, it not only you lose visibility, but you also lose time trying to parse yeah. all that stuff. So if you kind of pick your battles, um, out is definitely far more important than in. Uh, the exception of that for me would be uh, ICMP like type three errors. If mm -hmm. I see an internal IP is receiving a, a ton of ICMP type threes, oh yeah, there's something wrong with that box. Yeah, something very strange is going on. Um, this kind of, you know, takes a step into, let me tell my son to be quiet. Like he comes in and he's like, where's the ice cream? I've got snakes and turtles. So uh, yeah, I've got uh, a crazy, crazy, crazy 11 year old who is collecting all of the snakes, bringing them to me and saying, is this a rattlesnake? It's like, no, that's not rattlesnake, son. Um, so one of the things I like to kind of talk about, though, is the idea of cyber deception. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the webcast, that is a very key point, I think, that should be in cybersecurity as a whole. And one of my favorite tools that I wish everybody would run is a tool called PortSpoof. Uh, Chris, have you seen this tool before? No, I have not. Oh my gosh. All right. So what you do is you set up an IP tables rule for a port range or the unused ports on your computer system. And then any traffic that comes into your computer system, it reroutes it to another port where port spoof is listening. And I, I think the default port is like 2222 and you can change the port to whatever you want it to be. And every single unused port, it responds back as saying that port is open and it actually reaches into the Nmaps fingerprints file and it pulls out the fingerprint and it feeds it back. And it says, this is the service that's running behind this port. So whenever you run a vulnerability assessment scan or an Nmap scan, it comes back and it says, all of these ports are open and the services are just crazy. Like, you know, the port 13, VXWorks FTP daemon, a Cherokee, a Cherokee HTTP daemon is running on port 22, OSX server SFTP is running on 23, um, rumpus FTP. I don't even know what a rumpus FTP demon is, but it basically is just throwing all of this crap at anybody that's trying to scan. And it creates this really amazing white noise as an attacker. One, it's going to slow down your scanning tool. Like it takes like half an hour for Nmap to scan one IP address uh, because all of these different ports and services are responding. And the other thing it does is it's tripping a lot of alerts. So as an attacker is trying to attack your server externally, it finds all of these different services and all of these different ports are open and all of them are in fact listening. And then finally, for services like Shodan, if somebody gets to your network block, it gets very, very difficult for an attacker to go to Shodan to get clean information as far as what services are running. And it basically is throwing up a massive smoke screen. So you were talking about a lot of intrusion detection systems. They generate too much noise and too much information is bad as a defender. But we can also flip that entire calculus around and make it so that there's too much information for the attacker as well. And most of it is wrong. Now you can run this twice because it'll randomize the services for each port and you can try to identify which ports are static with their service identification. But that takes a tremendous amount of time and it generates a lot of alerts in the process of doing so. Yes. Uh, Jason asks, do, do you put port spoof on production boxes that usually have real world use? So there's a couple of different ways that you can do this. One, you can absolutely put this on a production server and you can run it. I have seen customers that do this. It makes my pen testers cry whenever <laughs> they come across it. Uh, I recommend setting it up internally though on servers. On the outside of the DMZ, you should be practicing good DMZ health and only allowing the ports into your servers that are actually required. That being said, Palo Alto and Fortinet 
and a number of the different firewall vendors, they actually have cyber deception modules built into them now, where if you scan a firewall or try to scan through a firewall, it'll respond back and do something very similar and say that every single port is open. It'll actually randomize the services coming back. So you can do this on your endpoint, or you can actually do it on many of your security appliances at the edge of your network as well. Okay. Uh, and Greg says, uh, can you configure it so that it will respond normally to your own scanner so that you can still conduct scans? And yeah, valid results? yeah, absolutely. It's an IP tables rule that actually forwards the data. So what you would do is right before this rule, you would have a rule that uh, basically would allow the IP address of your scanner to be, school, be, be able to scan the servers without the cyber deception in play. Where do you get port, port spoof? Um, it it's GitHub? in ADHD, actually. It's, yeah, there is. If you do GitHub port okay. spoof. Because that, um, I think that we just, I just replied. Um, yep. Bob, I think, sent that link. So you can check it out. Our there. favorite Bob. Bob yes. C. Our favorite Bob. Yeah, we love Bob. So uh, check this out. This is one of the things that's in ADHD. And this is actually a lab in our class at Black Hat as well. And really what we're trying to get through is this concept of the snowball of pain. I called it a snowball of crap. Uh, Sierra doesn't like it when I call it that because um, it's kind of a horrible image, right? Um, you didn't use the word crap before. No, I, I was, but that was <laughs> earlier around our interns and I was using coarse language. And uh, if you go back to the amount of software that you had installed in your environment in 2009, every single year that's passed since then, you keep on adding in more software. And the organization that we attacked uh, and we went through last week in the webcast is a really great case example of that. You know, they have JBoss exposed, they have databases exposed, they have multiple VPNs exposed. They keep adding software and they don't take software away. So, don't be an infosec dung beetle where you're constantly adding in more and more software and trying to defend that particular attack surface. There should be a good change management process in play that is constantly reducing the amount of software that you have. The less software you have, the reduced complexity it is that you're dealing with. And this goes back, uh, Chris, you have a lot of expertise in the cloud. This goes back to cloud as well, because people are throwing more and more of their IT infrastructure in the cloud with the explicit idea that they won't have to manage it. Uh, Amazon or Azure is going to manage it for them. And the big concern that I have, and this goes back to one of the companies you used to work for, is people are not managing that IT infrastructure with the assumption that somebody else is going to take care of it for them. And more often than not, we're gaining access to these cloud resources because people just aren't practicing good hygiene. No one. So, so I think I want to uh, reword what you said a little bit, which is sure. um, the assumption is someone is managing it better than we would, um, not necessarily perfectly. Because, yeah. you know, that is a thing that I've seen in a lot of environments where they say, oh, no, we won't, you know, push anything out to the cloud. It's too insecure. And then you look at their environment and, you know, not a system is patched more than six to nine months old. It's like, yep. well, come on, dude. You know? <laughs> it, it kind of requires you to be honest with yourself, right? Exactly. Exactly. Make that business choice. Well, it's like email. I think email is the classic cloud example. Uh, we still have people at BHIS who are like, you should stand up your own email server. To hell with that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 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 That's just a pain point. And I think that that's because the concept of email is so standardized and it's just a commodity now um, that it's it's very consistent. You do it right for one organization. You're going to do it right for another organization. Whereas if you're talking about any other type of, if you talk about Docker or containerization at all, there's all these different technologies. It isn't standardized across the board. And I don't think it ever will be. So some of these technologies make sense. But by and large, just throwing things to the cloud because you think they're, that it's going going to magically be taken care of for you, that's a trap. Uh, it may be taken care of better than you would, but you got to be honest with yourself about how crappy your security architecture is to begin with. Yeah. All right, so password spraying. Um, as you know, this is one of our favorite things. I think I've got, uh, no, this one's celebrating 10 years. This doesn't have spring or winter 20. No. Okay. Uh, but, uh, all of our shirts, all of our stickers that we have out there, they, they always have like spring or autumn or summer and then the year. And that's because it works, right? And in this example, it was winter 2017 and the Smith account was accessed. And this is kind of interesting. Your SIM 
should be able to detect these attacks. This is not rocket science. This is not cutting edge hackery that's going on. This is something that is absolutely positively detectable by any SIM that's out there today. You can look at the number of failed login attempts by uh, account or the aggregate amount of attempts from a specific IP address over a period of time. And any SIM worth their, sh worth their salt should be able to alert on this. But here's something that's weird. Very few organizations actually feed their logs from their web servers, SharePoint servers, anything that's in the DMZ into a SIM. I don't know why. Uh, they'll spend lots and lots and lots of money on web application firewalls and trying to protect and try to stop these attacks. But most web application attacks will light up the event logs like an absolute Christmas tree and the number of failed login attempts that would happen. And that's not going anywhere. So you really need to make sure that your SIM is tuned in such a way that you can detect these attacks externally. Um, and then of course, we do have a lot of customers where things are tuned but no one's watching. A uh, number of years ago, we had a customer that had this amazing ArcSight engineer. He still works there and he's still an amazing ArcSight engineer, but he's the he was the only ArcSight engineer at this organization. And he had amazing rules set up and he had like 50, 60 folders on his email for all of these different ArcSight alerts that basically got dumped into these different folders. But he couldn't watch them. He couldn't watch them. Because he's the only guy. He was the only person. And so the SIM was working. But so there was no one there to watch it whenever it was happening. And we have a lot of customers after we're done breaking into the environment, they'll say, ah, well, we could have caught you because here's the event logs. Well, do you have alerts for those? Did somebody watch for those alerts? Well, no, but we would have found it. Don't care. By the hey, time John, you look at it, it's gone. Yeah. So um, Stearns has written up a tool that goes through the logs, looks at what accounts are logging in from what IP addresses, figures out where that is geographically, and then watches to see does that IP address try and come in from someplace else later. So if you were to log in from South Dakota, mm -hmm. it would log you as South Dakota. Now, if all of a sudden you're trying to log in from Russia, it will actually flag that and can trigger IP table rules. I'm up at his website, Stearns.org. I don't see it up there, but I think uh, he's traveling right now. But I think between you and I, yeah, maybe we can get him to kind of put some spit and polish on it. And it's something we can uh, push out through Black Hills because that is just such an awesome tool. And it's so effective, right? Uh, it's so effective at stopping a lot of these different attacks. And um, if I remember correctly, I did talk to Bill about this. I think it actually watches the logs for the web server, uh, for an Apache web server, not just for like SSH. So and right. the IP tables rule is flexible. That means any application that's coming in and it's logging those failed login attempts, it has the ability of blocking that IP address at a much lower level than the application itself. Um, so it's really cool. And I think the final thing I was talking to him about it, I think this is like three years ago, I was talking to Stearns about it. Um, you have to make a full established connection. So you can't just simply do a spoof of an IP address. You've got to connect the three-way handshake, which is a lot more difficult spoof, not impossible, but it's more difficult before it actually has a generated login failure at that point. So just some cool stuff. Um, the other thing, Chris, that we've been seeing quite a bit is there's a lot of web servers out there that the more failed login IP address or more failed login attempts per IP address that shows up, it actually starts slowing down the responses to that IP address to the point where it'll take like six, seven seconds per authentication request. Now that's really, really, really slow. And that will greatly slow down any type of automated script out there that is designed for trying to detect, uh, or excuse me, trying to detect accounts via password spraying as well. And this is a big thing that we're trying to push with a number of our customers. Services tied to Active Directory should not be directly accessible to the internet. You just shouldn't. If you require email to be exposed to the internet, put it behind a VPN. If you require SharePoint for your employees, put it behind a VPN. I, I just don't see any possible way that that ends well. And this leads into the note on two-factor. Uh, we spend a lot of time bypassing two-factor authentication with tools like MailSniper and CredKing and so on. And it's important for people to understand that I can still harvest user IDs and passwords 
but I may not be able to log in. And what you can do is you harvest user IDs and passwords in one place that maybe has two-factor enabled, but then you'll use those credentials someplace else where two-factor is not enabled. So if you're running two-factor, it's essential that it be enabled absolutely everywhere. And any apps that you're using with two-factor authentication should also have it set up with the OWASP top 10 that I should not be able to harvest user IDs and passwords. Kind of the principal, uh, like, I don't know. Public enemy number one for this is Outlook Web Access. Outlook Web Access with two-factor will still allow me to harvest user IDs, and it'll still allow me to harvest passwords. I may not be able to authenticate to Outlook Web Access, but I've now harvested user IDs and passwords that can be used elsewhere. So someone have a question? Yes. Um, okay. We have a bunch of questions, so we'll just Ooh. go through them. Sean said, are you saying to have mail server VPN all the time to an external node? I don't understand the question. Um, it's VPNed all the time to an external node. Ask again, Sean, and we'll try and ask. <laughs> Sorry, it. man. Okay, okay. Jason said, what about SAML slash OAuth between AD and the internet-based app? See, you can still um, do some credential harvesting with that as well. Um, and a lot of people will actually use that type of authentication with like Outlook Web Access uh, and not Outlook Web, Web Access, Office 365 or a number of other services that are tied through Azure. If those APIs are actually exposed and I can communicate to those APIs, it depends on how it's written, whether or not I can do harvesting. You're not going to do the standard web-based harvesting. You would still use something like Burp to automate that, but it depends very much on the API and how it's handling the authentication request. Oh, goodness. Uh, okay. Well, I'm trying to keep up with you guys. Okay. So, huh? Okay, Sean, back to Sean's question. I don't understand what you're saying to have it not internet accessible. It needs to be connected, but you said put it behind a VPN. So, mm -hmm. I don't understand what you're saying. So, if I want to log into my email, okay, if I want to log into my email, um, let's take cloud email off the table. If you're running your own internal Outlook web access instance, you're running Exchange, don't ever expose Outlook web access directly to the internet. I can't stress this enough. Uh, we break into these things all of the time. If you have OA enabled, a lot of times Exchange web services is enabled. If you have to have email exposed, what you do is you have your employees that are remote VPN. Once they're on the VPN, then they can access their email. In fact, a law enforcement agency, whenever uh, Bo released uh, um, uh, mail sniper they actually did just that they actually moved all of their email behind a vpn to try to restrict it this does create issues this is going to be a political problem far more than a technical or architectural problem because a lot of executives and people that travel they don't want to have to go through those extra steps but trust me if you have anything exposed on the outside of your environment that is tying authentication back into active directory that is a very easy point for us to basically identify enumerate user ids and passwords so you'd authenticate to your VPN, then access your email. Don't put this email service directly on the internet. Now that's different, as I mentioned, from something like Google or Outlook or Office 365. If we're talking about your own internal email, you've got to be careful with that. So um, a bunch of people have asked, um, is a web like, are the same problems there with Office 365 or are yes. they separate? Um, so the, the Office 365 is a lot better with two-factor authentication. So if you're attacking OWA, you can use MailSniper against Office 365. But if you have two-factor authentication enabled, that Exchange Web Services backdoor to bypass the two-factor authentication isn't there. Uh, so it's a lot better. It's still not great because uh, traditionally with our pen test against Office 365 accounts, when we password spray and gain access, Microsoft to build at today, currently, is not that great at detecting password sprays and alerting our customers. Most of our customers discover the password spray attacks that we ran against their uh, Office 365 accounts like a week or two after we are done with the engagement. So we're not getting that really good feedback from the vendor saying, there's an attack, here's an alert, please react to it appropriately. It's just not there yet. So. Uh, cool. All right, we're good? Uh, well, we have a lot more, but go ahead. All right, we'll keep going. I'll try to like sort through them. <laughs> so now with the attack, we now have direct access to an email account, right? So we access the account as Mr. Smith. Once you have an email and it's valid and you're able to log in to that account, it becomes very easy to then download the global address list, which we'll talk about here in a second. So this is a lot harder to detect. 
if you weren't able to detect the initial password spread, the ability for your organization to detect an attacker who has valid credentials coming into the organization like a normal user would is very, very difficult. And I honestly believe in many ways we've jumped to cloud services far before they were ready. And most cloud services have very poor detection of attacks. And if you look at the entire CASB market space, uh, all the cloud access security broker market space is basically because our cloud services are horrible at a lot of different components of computer security out there. Basically, it's a technology based on pure, poor security controls, and there's a lot of vendors that make a tremendous amount of money filling that gap. So you have Sky High Networks, which is now McAfee, uh, Netscope, Forcepoint are the big ones that we see. And this also ties into if you're going to use these cloud services, you do need to use two-factor, but notice I say everywhere. If you use two-factor and you only hit 95% of your applications, I can harvest in place X, and then I can use those credentials in that 5% that does not require the two-factor authentication. So this is a huge problem. And I think that cloud access security brokers are part of the solution, but they're still filling this gap that basically exists because our cloud providers do not give us the level of fidelity that we need to stay compliant with our overall security processes and procedures in our organization. And a little bit later, I'm going to talk about one of our problems. And we've talked about this in previous webcasts, but I want to talk about when we thought BHIS was hacked a while ago. We're going to talk about what that looked like and what a pain it was to actually identify what happened. Uh, Chris, anything to add on this before we move on? No, I'm good. Go for it. You bet. So now that we have access to Mr. Smith's account, we download the global address list and we pull all of those user accounts out. And now we're ready to start password spraying, not against just a handful of accounts that were discovered during recon, but now we can start doing password spraying against the entire global address list. And in this situation, we found five more accounts with the password of winter 2017. If it worked once, keep using it again and again and again. Now, what are some ways that you can detect this? To be honest, one of the ways that you can detect this is you can create Honey accounts in your environment. Uh, this is based on a webcast we did about four months ago, Honey Admin and Share, where I walked through how to create a Honey Administrator account or any Honey account, it honestly doesn't matter, where you can set up an account with the login hours set to zero, you can set up an account in Office 365, you can set up an account through any cloud service provider, and if that account is ever used, it should immediately generate alert. So in the example I have, the screen on the left shows creating the account, the screen in the middle, the blue one, shows a password spray running against an account and pulling out and identifying you know passwords of like spring 2018 and so on or spring 2017 and the bottom one actually shows an event where somebody tried accessing this particular account if we make an assumption that an adversary may gain access to a service and after they gain access to that service they'll enumerate all of the other accounts like a global address list by having a few accounts peppered within that kind of directory that are there just exclusively from the perspective of generating alerts, it increases the likelihood that you're going to be able to detect these attacks. Because once again, this is hard. You see user accounts doing what user accounts normally do as far as authenticating in normally, accessing their email normally, accessing a service normally. So what we can do is create some accounts that are basically there. So when the attacker starts trying to access those accounts through a standard password spread, an alert will be generated. This webcast, the one that we did, uh, this is whenever you came out to DC. Um, when was that? That was almost a year ago now. Yeah, it was last summer. That was Sandsfire. Yep. Um, this takes me like literally 15 minutes to set up. And if you have a pen test coming up, please set this up. Uh, and any of your different accounts, be it an external, be it an internal pen test, whatever they're doing, set up these accounts. And you can even go further with many of your SIM technologies that if these accounts are ever touched and someone tries to authenticate to these accounts, you can automatically lock out that workstation or lock out the account that is trying to authenticate in. So there are some amazing tips and tricks that you can use in cyber deception to help out with this. Looking for VPN instructions. Uh, Okay, this is very, very common, not just from the cloud perspective, but also on in the internal perspective as well, where people overshare uh, documents and they overshare instructions, they overshare certificates and everything so that anyone in the organization can access them. So we never really got good at locking down 
oversharing in environments. And if you go back all the way to like 2003, 2002, uh, it's not Netbus. Uh, there was a tool that was out um, that was basically designed in finding shares and giving you permissions on who had access to those shares. And that was a big deal for a while. And uh, it was like Net Enum, I think was the name of it. And then it kind of went away. And now we have newer tools like PowerShell Empire, where we can run ShareFinder and FileFinder to basically go through and find these overprivileged shares and find potentially damaging files that have passwords in them or credentials in them or certificates or database dump files as well. But we never got good at that internally with file sharing and Active Directory. Now with the cloud, it's actually getting much, much, much worse because you have users now they are sharing on their local file shares and they're sharing in Dropbox, they're sharing in Box.com, they're sharing out on Google Drive, they're sharing everywhere and being able to track where everything is, is really hard. And your CASB is yet again a product that's basically supposed to help that. The problem I have with CASBs though, is they only can protect what they know about, right? A lot of people believe if they're running a CASB that it's basically doing full data loss prevention on their whole environment. And it will only do data loss prevention on the specific services that you pointed at. If you have users that are using Dropbox, if you have users that are using Drive, if they're using all of these different file sharing utilities, you're still going to be blind, right? Further, if you are using something like Google or Azure and you're sharing files within your own company, in order to get the logging and the fidelity that you need to be able to audit, uh, Chris, uh, you had an awesome, awesome idea uh, for external sharing of files um, that you told me about earlier. And I said, yes, we got to talk about that today. What was that idea you told me about headers and stuff? That was really, really cool. So the, the challenges with Google Documents, you can go in and you can say share inside the environment or let people outside get access as well. And as soon as you let in outside people, now there's the concern that someone might share something they shouldn't. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the ways I've dealt with this in the past is you create a mandate that says if you share in a, in a document outside of the environment, right in the document name, it has to say shared externally. What that does is that kind of lets other internal folks know that this document can be seen by the outside world. So be careful about the contents of it. And then via the Google API, you can go through and audit that. You know, we used to do it once a month. You can do it more often if you want to. And just look at what documents are shared beyond just the internal organization. Give me all their names and anything that doesn't have externally shared in the document name, that's something you need to go flag the person about and and I love that solution right because it's kind of using the tools that are at hand um, but the thing that's kind of hard is having that auditing capability of going through all the files that are shared in your entire environment externally once again many cloud vendors they will actually charge you more for that capability within the API's or within the built-in tool set that exists for administrators so it is worth the extra money yeah um, everybody the, needs to hire a Melissa Bruno <laughs> Melissa's no. our person who figures this stuff out and just no, figures she, out she, how to she, extract it all out of the You her. can't have her. She's, <laughs> that sounds really creepy. <laughs> She's ours. <laughs> can't have her. Um, so about a year and a half ago, we thought BHIS was hacked. Uh, we had some weird files that started showing up and some weird pop-ups that started showing up. The admin uh, project management staff started freaking out. And... Um, we were absolutely convinced that we were compromised for about two to three hours. I thought I was going out of business. And when we started digging a little really bit more, scary. it was really scary. Uh, when we started digging more, there was questions I was asking that I couldn't get answers to. I was like, well, how many files have been accessed by these accounts that we think have been compromised? And we couldn't get that. We couldn't get that data. We had, didn't have the logging of what file the account that we thought was compromised, what files it was pulling down. Um, what files are being shared externally from the company? Couldn't couldn't answer that question, right? And it was really, really tough because we had to pay extra money to get that fidelity. We did, we got that fidelity, we were able to find out, no, we weren't hacked. Um, what it turned out to be is a mobile app was installed on someone's phone for handling uh, uh, airplane travel. Tickets. Yeah, travel, uh, TripIt was the name of the app. Something anybody would do, right? You'd install it on your phone, you're flying a lot, you're gonna install TripIt to help. Well, TripIt automatically will go through all of your documents, it'll go through all of your emails, it'll access your calendar, it'll automatically find your trips and then add those trips to your calendar for you, making your life easy. That looks a lot like malware. 
In fact, <laughs> um, Mike Felch's tool that actually authenticates to Google does very much the same thing. It adds itself as a malicious app, then it gains access to everything with an app password. And looks and at then, everything. And then it looks at everything. So apps can be dangerous. Have you audited all of the apps that your cloud provider for like email is enabled? Uh, for your users should take a look at it. It's it's very, very, very eye-opening, but it's definitely lessons learned for us. And it also helped us because now we can talk to customers a little bit more intelligently about what works and what doesn't. Uh, so this is uh, Nanobot Ninja, uh, sorry, this is MailStriper running against Nanobot Ninjas. And you can see how we can do a search for secret password or password to find these sensitive files in your organization. So defense, OWA and Exchange Web Services exposed to the internet is outright evil. I was talking to another IONS customer last week or yesterday. I honestly can't remember. Um, and they were running OWA with Exchange Web Services and walked through and told them, that's bad. You need to stop that right now. And yeah, everyone in the meeting kind of rolled their eyes. Uh, they thought, well, that's not that big of a deal. It absolutely is. This is one of the main ways that we're getting access to your organization. And if these are exposed, you can and will be hacked. It is not difficult at all if you have OWA and EWS uh, exposed, even if you have two-factor enabled. Because remember, two-factor is going to protect your Outlook web access. It's not necessarily going to protect your Exchange web services. Office 365, somebody asked earlier about Office 365, is better with two-factor, but there is a gap of about an hour to two hours where it's not enabled properly. And once again, exposing any level of AD authentication to the internet is just bad. Please be careful. Also, long passwords. Long passwords are absolutely essential to any good defense. Uh, VPN access, immediately as soon as we got access to a bunch of user IDs, password hashes, we're going to use them. We got the certificates, we accessed the VPN. This was an organization, once again, that had more than one VPN technology. Uh, big defense on that, standardize and reduce. If it's not needed, you don't need three different VPNs. You need to find a way to reduce your application footprint. SIM can help. Multiple concurrent logins. Some SIMs are doing something similar that Chris talked about in uh, in Stearns' tool, where it'll actually check where your account is authenticating from. And if it starts seeing wide swings in geographic location, then it can actually lock that account out or shut it down as well. But yes, this does get hard, right? Because it is a valid login that is accessing a system. And we're tr moving away right now from traditional malware simply installing malware on a system and then detecting it. We've got to be looking at beaconing into these cloud services. Got to be looking at people accessing these services remotely, VPN, Citrix, and so on. And it's easier for attackers to hide in plain sight. Now, you could create a fake VPN. And this is another thing that we talk about in our class, and it's in ADHD for free. You could run Honey Badger, put up a fake VPN. And as soon as the attacker sees that VPN, they start getting all excited and they try to run it. And we can actually geolocate them within like 20 meters. And Honey Badger is in ADHD uh, as well. Uh, any uh, any other questions? Um, yeah, there are a lot of questions if you want to look at them. I've called through them, but there's a lot of them. Okay. Um, I will just go ahead and start. Um, just pick a couple and then we'll move on. Okay. Um, so Daniel said, can an HTTPS web proxy that enforces a separate two-factor login serve as a strong solution in place of a VPN? This would be to protect the web application that sits behind the proxy, such as the OWA example. So the problem with that is, yes, that should work really, really well in theory. But one of the problems that you run into is Burp has the ability to follow redirects. So if I try to authenticate to your web proxy and it goes through a series of redirects and gives me an invalid user ID or password page, and it's different for an invalid user ID as it is from a password, we can still do harvesting of accounts. And that's really one of the core problems. Yes, it is good, but be careful on how it handles those redirects. Every single redirect in the page you land on for failed login attempts should be the exact same, uh, like your failed user ID or password and or password, something like that. But it's the same generic message every single time, regardless of whether or not it was a valid user ID with a bad password or an invalid user ID. Um, and Chris, we mentioned that Stearns tool. Is there? Is it open source? Is there a link to it? Oh, I guarantee you it's open source. If Where Bill has it, we're going to get a link. Uh, okay. well, what, so what I know, Chris was talking I know, about. Yes, yeah, so I know Bill wrote it. Um, I've seen it 
deployed in a couple of environments. It's awesome. Uh, he does have a site, Stearns.org, that he posts stuff up at. I don't see it up there, but I also know he's at a uh, spam conference in Germany this week. So uh, next week, I'll get him to toss that up there or get it on the Black Hills site. We'll, we'll, yeah, we we'll get it out there. Okay. Yeah, so just watch Twitter. It's gonna, we're going to share it out there at some okay. point. All right, so defense is against domain recon post-exploitation, right? Your SIM, once again. But let's back up and let's talk about what a SIM should be doing, right? And this is one of those projects that I think is one of those uh, fundamentally game-changing approaches to um, the way we handle event IDs, right? And how we handle SIM. So this is an outstanding resource where JP Surat went through a series of different tools and exploits. And some of them are just built in utilities like WMI. And they generated this amazing overview of what types of artifacts does that tool create on the system in the registry and in the event logs? What ports does it use whenever it's communicating? And this will allow you to kind of tune your SIM properly for like PS exec running remote uh, commands on a computer system, whether it's Metasploit's PS exec or it's Windows PS exec, and you'll see the install service and it'll start and it'll run. Windows remote management, it's all right here, right? So this is a great resource for you to kind of take your SIM and tune it so you're looking at the right things. Instead of just looking at every single event log that is happening in your organization, you're gonna reduce that down to the event logs that actually matter. Uh, user behavioral analytics and entity analytics is, is amazing, right? Checking out the behavior of an account, what the account is doing, and basically alerting on that is really game-changing in this industry. Now, these technologies are relatively new. There's a lot of great presentations on bypassing and breaking these products, but we're seeing these products start to get better, right? It, you know, they come up with an idea, someone breaks it, they change it, they make it better. It's gonna be this escalation game in a while, uh, for a while, but entity and behavioral analytics is absolutely something that every organization should have. And this really ties to one of my favorite ways of looking at security is overlapping fields of visibility and protection. For every single asset, I'm just using the endpoint as an example, we have antivirus, user behavioral analytics, NetFlow, SIM, endpoint firewall protections. We have all of that enabled. So if any one of those technologies fails, we have another technology that can kind of pick up the slack. Curb roasting. Uh, once again, uh, and also GPP, Group Policy Preference Files, uh, with passwords enabled to them. So defense, strong and long passwords for your services. A lot of weak service accounts, the reason why there's passwords that have that are really weak with service accounts is because they're legacy service accounts from like five, six, seven years ago. And when you establish a service account, you're going to go through, create the service account, make it so the password never expires because you want that service to continue to run and keep working. But if that service account runs and it continues to work and do what it's doing, and then the server that it's actually working on is retired, the service account is still there. The password is still a weak password from a decade ago, and it's still active. And in many situations, very high privileges in the environment. So you need to audit those service accounts and then try to remove them as much as possible. Um, crack your service account passwords. Uh, if you have any password hashes that don't begin with AADB34 or the landman hash of padding, means that password is too short and also landman is enabled. This legacy stuff is just going to kill us, right? Um, and don't just patch. So with group policy preferences, when Microsoft released the patch, it stopped that vulnerability from moving forward in the future. If you didn't read and understand what that patch did, then you didn't understand that all of your legacy group policy preference files still had passwords in them that were easily reversible and cracked as well. So understand what does this patch do? What does, uh, um, what does the group policy preference file work? How does it work? And so on. So we start using the creds and moving laterally in your environment. Uh, I had a good call with a customer yesterday, host-based firewalls. I tweeted this out last week. I said, I don't care what your security architecture goals are for the next year. If you have not enabled your host-based firewalls, please stop what you're doing and enable them. 
turn them on either through your antivirus vendor or use the NetSH ADV firewall with group policy in your environment, enable your host-based firewalls. Uh, user behavioral analytics will detect this account is now logged into multiple different systems at the exact same time as well. Um, so just because something can be broken doesn't necessarily mean it is without value, right? Just because we can bypass user behavioral and entity analytics doesn't mean it is a worthless piece of trash. It just means that it has some weaknesses, going back to that overlapping field of view. Another great tool if you don't want to purchase a behavioral analytics products right out of a product right out of the gate is Logon Tracer from JPSERT, yet again. It'll look at a handful of very specific event IDs and it'll map out and rank the number of accounts that are logged into in your environment. And for systems, how many other systems is that individual computer accessing? And it'll show you your worst offenders. So this is fantastic for doing that behavioral entity analytics on the cheap or free in the situation by simply ingesting the EVTX files for security into the uh, into this tool and then automatically sort stack and give you a report. So an outstanding utility as well. Um, what is a good resource for building a host-based firewall rule set from scratch to be effective? Um, so there's a couple of different things you can do for a host-based firewall rule set. Um, one, you can use the built-in one that is with your antivirus vendor. And those are usually the easiest to work with because they have front-end dashboards that are very effective to work with. But what a lot of organizations do is they'll roll out firewall rule sets to their help desk, to their systems administrators first. Because if there's a problem that they encounter, they have the technical skills to troubleshoot, troubleshoot and fix that issue before they roll it out to the general population. Also, with a lot of the firewall rules, you can have it generate a log or an alert and not block. It's kind of like doing a learning mode. So it'll sit there and run and you can say, oh, well, it would have blocked these 15 things that are business critical. We're going to allow them. Um, finally, if you're going to use NetSH, NetSH ADV firewall has the capability of doing firewalling based on port and also by application profiles. So you can allow certain applications to listen and make outbound connections. But by and large, uh, you're going to restrict it to your workstations can be accessed from help desk subnets, administrator subnets, server subnets. They just can't talk to each other directly. And that would be another webcast that we should probably talk about. Yeah, yeah one thing to toss on that, John, is when you use a host-based firewall, test it. Yeah. Uh, just because the front end comes back and tells you, oh, yeah, nothing's open, don't worry about it, doesn't mean that's actually a true statement. Mm -hmm. And it, like you said, it doesn't mean it's trash, but you need to understand what gets through. Uh, it, it minimum, you're usually going to get ICMP type 3s, type 11s to get through. So there's a potential covert communication channel, but it's certainly better than, you know, every TCP, every UDB port being open as well. And it's just restricting the amount of real estate that you have to watch, right? You're not exactly. watching everything, you're restricting it down. So next in this particular example, we established a secondary command and control channel with a backdoor. And uh, defense against that, block ads. I know that that seems weird. I'm saying defense against you know, C2, block ads. But this goes back to what Chris and I just talked about. If you allow ads, there's so much white noise in your environment that trying to pick out a command and control channel can become very difficult. So by blocking ads, you're cleaning up that signal to noise ratio so it's easier to identify. Restrict outbound firewall ports or egress filtering. Host firewalls can help with this as well. A NetFlow analysis with Bro and Rita uh, for real intelligence threat analytics, and then internet whitelisting. I love Pi-hole. Have you been down at the Rapid Office yes. recently? Yes, and I've used that. Yep, and you go to some of the websites, and it's like, hey, you're trying to go to this webpage. Are you sure you want to go to this yes, webpage? Yes, I am. Yes, yes I do I want to go to it. But by having that type of filtering, it actually blocks a lot of backdoors. They got annoyed with me and gave me the stuff so I could just approve my own. You're an approver now? Yeah. I'm going to ask for your permission because they won't <laughs> They won't let me approve sites. They're like, they got that tired like of marketing bothering them. Yeah. Um, and then active countermeasures. Uh, we have a product that helps with this. So check it out, activecountermeasures.com. Uh, pull the password hashes. Uh, we did this through volume shadow copy. Once again, uh, cracking passwords, JPCERT has a fantastic resource for a number of different password dumping utilities that'll tell you all of the different artifacts that are left behind and the events that are triggered whenever you inject into the local security authority subsystem service to pull out those password hashes or access the registry to pull the password hashes from there as well with syskey. Long passwords. 17 characters or more. Um, you know, be sane, allow people to use dictionary words, but please, please make 17, like long. minimum, minimum, because we use 30. We, we have it at 30? Yeah. We got everybody up to 30? That's good. Well, I mean, yeah. Must be why some of our 
Yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny for most of us, like 30. Yeah, I'm good. Uh, other people are like, what? But My that's why a password six manager characters. is so good. Yeah. Um, okay, we are out of time, but we're we're gonna keep going. Okay, yep. if you need this to leave, is recorded. we're recording it. Um, if we didn't get to your question, I apologize. You can always email it to me, um, and I will pester John some. <laughs> and the slides will be available answer. too. And we'll give you the slides as well when we post it next Monday. So, um, but if you can stay, we'll continue. Yep, we're just got a few more slides and then we're done. Okay. All right, so defenses for search and plunder. If once we're on a system, the goal of that system is not domain administrator. The goal of that system and getting on that environment is to try to gain access to sensitive data in that organization and take control. And to defend against that, honey docs. Uh, you can, a canary, I love this, uh, canary tokens. They have this amazing resource right here where you can create a variety of different callbacks uh, QR scan, SVN, AWS keys, uh, Windows folders, PDF documents, and all of these things beacon back and you can download and you can create this entire infrastructure on your own environment. So you can kind of seed out some files in places that they shouldn't be. And if somebody pulls those files down and runs them, you now know that something is up. Um, User behavior and entity analytics. Why is this account accessing thousands of files per second? We should be able to detect that. Audit your shares before the attackers do with PowerShell Empire. And look for shares that have everyone or authenticated users groups. That means it's open to everybody in the environment. Final thing, ask how would a normal user access the data? And then try to audit those paths that your normal user would normally go through to gain access to the data. Because odds are, that's the exact same attack path the attacker would use. And use this kind of visual anytime you're talking about anything, whether it's a file or an endpoint or a web server, how many different ways do you have protections on top of it? Is it just antivirus or do you have antivirus and firewalls, um, maybe running an IPS web application firewall? How many different overlapping fields of visibility do you have on your assets? Because at any point, your standalone endpoint antivirus can be bypassed. User behavioral analytics can be bypassed. Your SIM can be bypassed. But I know of very, very, very few attackers that can bypass every single one of these technologies if they're actually implemented and tuned properly. So this is uh, this particular webcast was brought to you by Active Countermeasures. Uh, notice it's not Black Hills Information Security. Black Hills Information Security will be the offensive webcast. We are the defensive webcast, and uh, we do AI Hunter, network hunting. We're trying to make everyone a hunter, not just the 1% the of 1% tech geeks. Um, advanced beacon detection, DNS tunnels, misconfigured services, data visualization that actually works. If you guys want a demo, uh, hit us up, uh, questions at activecountermeasures.com, or you can go to the website and, and you can just one. register a for a demo there. We'd love to show it to you. Um, I know it's probably one of those weird companies where you can actually have the owners of the company sit down and show you the tool. And uh, we've had a couple of cool demos, uh, Chris and I, over the past couple of weeks. We've had a couple of the customers on the call say, I would like this tool to do X, Y, and Z. And like literally the next week, we're able to implement that uh, as quickly as possible. So we love getting feedback from people on how to make the product better. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. That is it. Sierra's doing the hand thing. We got to wrap it up. I'm three meeting. minutes over. You have um, a meeting. I do have a meeting. So please, uh, please, please, please get a hold of us. And thank you so much for attending, everyone. And we will see you in the next webcast. Thanks again, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the podcast version of the Black Hills Information Security webcast. See you again next time.